Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that loves nothing more than upgrading its guidance. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the doctor, the upgraded doctor, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, Captain. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm sure you're particularly well this morning. I'm not going to give this away yet, but suffice it to say, for those who've been paying attention, we're recording this on Thursday morning, the 28th of January. Uh, it's something of a Christmas day for Doc. We'll, uh, we'll get to that in a sec, mate. Uh, in between, in the meantime, like a bit of macro stuff and some interesting stuff from the IMF, the US, Australia, lots going on. Mate, we are going to get into this GameStop palaver. We'll try and give our listeners some degree of... <laughs> information um, without getting stuck down the rabbit hole of shorting and derivatives and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, I heard the phrase gamma squeeze used. We're not going to use the phrase gamma squeeze, I promise, though I do allow our foolish colleague Jim Gilly, so a shout out for Jim. Uh, we will talk about the good news for corporate Australia. We've got uh, car net, net zero commitments being made or sought, iron ore on the fall, and of course, those, well, the, the Christmas day I talked about earlier. We'll, uh, we'll keep our listeners in suspenders and we'll uh, get on with it. What do you reckon? I think that's a good plan. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. So let's start with the big macro as we tend to do. Uh, I'm going to say three bits of good news in the last seven days, mate. We we saw, uh, I think it was, oh, was it Tuesday night now? I think Wednesday morning. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, upgraded its forecast for global economic growth. They didn't have Australia's numbers specifically this time. They, they, they bracketed us in other advanced economies. So I guess we'll have to deal with that. It's insulting, but we'll deal. Um, interesting, mate, the US growth was upgraded by two full percentage points. Europe down one full percentage point, And the globe as a whole up 0.3%. In, look, you know, these numbers are small in in absolute senses, but in dollars or, or yen or pounds or, or yuan, they're massive. But also too, you know, the difference between a 25 and a 2.8% growth is actually a really meaningful difference, for example, globally. So, but I thought that was interesting. I thought the, the country and kind of continent changes were also fascinating. Um, the US pouring ahead, EU slipping further behind in terms of the change year on year. China kind of getting back to, to full speed as well. As an export-focused economy, I'm feeling pretty good about that from Australia's perspective. Yeah, like, you know, like, again, I don't know, if, like, these forecasts, right? I mean, they're, they're just that, forecasts, right? <laughs> <laughs> predictions. Um, yeah. And they're just as good as my predictions, right? Like, I mean, I could also yeah. make some predictions. <laughs> so... Um, I think, you should, I think you, should, you should have the doc forecast indicator. Every every quarter, we'll put it out on the, exclusively on this podcast. The only way you're going to get doc's forecast is listen to this podcast, and you can you can regale our listeners, mate, with your expectations. What do you reckon? I think that's a good idea. Like, look, it seems to, to me it seems like this, right? So, I would first ask, what's the quantum of stimulus, right? Yeah. If the yeah. quantum of stimulus is very large, like I mean, the US is still talking about what, like two trillion dollars of stimulus, like Amazing, I mean, hey? two. Yeah trillion dollars isn't that like isn't that more than the australian like gdp of one year it probably is it probably is i don't really know but I so if you talk about stimulus in that sort of range and this is this like the what yeah. the next installment that's right i mean you get some growth like you know and and, and so you know maybe i'm batting for eu here uh, i would not be bat for actually us but i'm batting for eu here i was going to say uh, yeah well, but you know, I just what drives me bonkers is that it totally is these numbers of, you know, whatever growth rate we are seeing is totally a function of I have pumped this much money into the economy and people don't have a way to spend this money. So therefore, it's going to result in people buying more coffee and like buying, buying more, I don't know, super, super sized McDonald's meals. That's going to drive the economy. Then what? 
is my I question. Know. So I, I don't know how I feel about it. I am very uncertain about these economic numbers that I, I want to see what is underlying beneath it. So what I want to see is what have you done with the stimulus funds yeah. that fundamentally changes something over the next 10 years? And my yeah. answer right now is a big not, <laughs> big zero. So yeah, like I mean, sure. <laughs> maybe maybe EU needs to, you know, take out its uh, stimulus bazooka and go for like three trillion EU, um, you know, euros of stimulus, and then all of a sudden they'll have growth. <laughs> now, mate, here's, you, you asked the question. Level it up. He said we don't do our research here at Motley for Money. The uh, Australian GDP in US dollars, one point four trillion dollars. Canadian GDP, one point seven four trillion dollars. US stimulus, one point nine trillion dollars okay. so there you go there we go so, so if you put of- more stimulus than like you know canada uh like you know yeah. you're like 50 percent more than this uh, uh-huh, the uh-huh. australian yeah of course you're going to get some growth <laughs> like i mean like actually if you yeah. did not get growth after that <laughs> that's right uh, that would be really <laughs> worrying like after exactly. that like something right. is really not working right so i don't know i don't i'm not particularly excited by any of these numbers <laughs> because uh i think they're not addressing real mm-hmm. problems uh, which is, I think, you know, at some point these things come and bite you, like, I mean, you know. So, I don't know. <laughs> I reserve my judgment of condemning EU's uh, negative growth. <laughs> I mean, let me stick with let me stick with macro for a second, though, because what, you know what I thought was interesting? So, US is going to grow reasonably strongly um, in, the, in the coming year, according to the IMF, and as you say, they probably should. I mean, that was always the big risk, without going too much of attention, the big risk was always we spent all this money and didn't get growth, so I suppose it, at least it's not as bad as it could have been, but maybe that's a, you know, maybe that's a, some sort of Pyrrhic victory. In any case, what I thought was fascinating is the US is going to, probably going to grow faster than Australia, I, I assume, in the next 12 months. But the consumer confidence numbers are fascinating. So 100 points is the is neutral, right? Below 100, you're feeling pessimistic. Above 100, you're feeling optimistic. The Roy Morgan numbers came out here in Australia overnight, overnight yesterday, uh, at 112 points. So effectively, that's a that's a 14 month high. It's around about as high as we get. We very rarely get hot, you know, more. Um, uh, more confident than that, they kind of you know, there's, there's upper bounds on these things. On the other side, um, the US, despite all the stuff we just mentioned, is actually going to grow at a reasonably uh, sorry, not going to grow. The, the consumer confidence there is a reasonably pessimistic 89 points. And I just, I, I don't really have a, an insight into that, man. Like, I mean, you may not either, so maybe maybe this is a quick question. But I just thought it was fascinating, and I, I wonder if it's economic settings, whether it's the, the inequality in the US, whether it's we're just happier here in Australia or more optimistic. I don't certainly don't know the long run numbers, so I can't really contextualize it. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, uh, maybe it's maybe it's political, maybe it's just the, the divided country over there and um, plenty of people who, who were on one side of, of politics are, you know, decrying a, a horrible election loss that's going to destroy the country. I, I don't know what it is. It just, it struck me that, you know, and again, you know, consumers don't necessarily live the IMF numbers. But if you've got an economy growing at or around as fast as Australia, probably faster, I think. Unemployment, I think, was roughly the same number, actually, reasonably recently, about 6.6% for both Australia and the US, but really different consumer confidence numbers. Do you have a, a thought and inside of you? Or do we just let it go through to the keeper? No, no, I have a view. So, like, overnight, uh, there was a Fed statement out, right, which basically, so we are getting recording on Thursday, right? So overnight, there was a Fed statement out, basically, which right, is right. saying that the economic recovery is starting to moderate in the US. Um, again, that's not unexpected, right? Because part of the recovery is driven by... So there's a lot of moving parts here, right? So there's stimulus, there's the pandemic. 
and the, yeah. then there's a roaring pandemic, right? So if your vaccine rollout is slower mm-hmm. and your stimulus rollout is slower, um, then parts of the mm-hmm. consumer-driven economy that are a function of essentially people going out and doing stuff, yeah. Yeah. right, uh, is affected. I mean, you know, that, I think it's got, you know, there might be a political angle to it, but I'm not sure. But I would, you know, what what the Fed statement is basically saying is that the recovery uh, is moderating. And that I think is largely a function of what's going on with uh, the pandemic and what people think now the pandemic's outlook is going to be over the next year or next two years, right? Maybe they didn't say that stimulus actually uh, in the economy before they they can really feel good about things actually picking up. Yeah, or, or like, yeah, like, you know, if people, for example, are feeling like they want to travel to Mexico, but they can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they want to go to a restaurant, but they can't, I mean, that is going to have ripple effects on, say, you know, airlines and hotels and, mm. uh, you know, things like that, or even like, you know, I just use Mexico, but you could be like going to Florida, for example. So I, I think part of it is, is just that. Uh, okay, so again, like, I don't know, like, again, it, it, uh, what, what I like to see is what is happening like mm. long term and I, I don't think that either of these things are actually doing anything yet for the long they're all about a short-term band-aid solution right so the, the stimulus is a necessary short-term band-aid solution mm-hmm. but it actually the real result really depends on how the stimulus funds got used and you know we wouldn't know how that that plays through until I guess you know in five years time we probably know whether or not there was useful spending or wasteful spending <laughs> very true man the last one I mentioned already so I won't dwell on too much but the Australian unemployment rate fell again to 6.6 percent I'm, I'm kind of almost sick of saying it but I'm not because it's, it's really good news but um and I, I, again you think about the economic circumstances we find ourselves in now I don't think you could have you know the most I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic but the most optimistic person I don't think could have said January 27 January 28 no, I think that was right oh, right last week actually 21st 22nd um, that we'd have a 6.6% unemployment rate if you'd asked us in the middle of February, March, April last year. So, um, you know, again, does, does it matter? Probably matters a lot for those people, right? Maybe that's the bigger question is, you know, while we talk about averages and, and totals and, and you know, uh, sort of almost abstract economic stats, the fact that we've got plenty of people in work is obviously good for them and, and, and good for the economy as well. So um, good good news there as well. Three, three bits of good news. We can at least we can pack, tuck in our back pocket whether they, whether they matter enough, whether they mean enough, whether they're uh, targeted right, as you say. Um, better than the alternative, right? Yeah, well... I guess, like again, I don't know. Is is my answer for this? It is really, really hard to know how this thing is going to actually how this whole thing is going to pan out over the long term is really hard to know for me at least. Mate, I'm gonna let's move on to something. I I don't even know how to characterize this, mate. I I I am equal parts horrified and fascinated. It is fascinating purely intellectually it is horrifying from a whole lot of perspectives um you know it is the it is the gamification the reality tvification i've just made up that word do you like it uh of of investing to some degree um so many people have so many different views on this it's also by the way a really difficult thing to try and conceptualize on an audio podcast so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to, to keep me on the straight and narrow mate and see if we can get through this and explain what's going on the the story is GameStop now GameStop is a US retailer, kind of like EB Games here. If you're into your kind of computer games and and consoles and that kind of stuff, um, they were trading not that long ago for three or five dollars a share, and plenty of people, as in plenty of plenty of people, expected this business would simply go by the wayside. That physical retail of gaming consoles and games and merchandise simply had no future. So they shorted the stock. Now this is where the jargon starts. When you short a stock, you are betting. 
the share price will go down. Effectively, what you're doing is you're buying the shares at a high, uh, sorry, selling the shares at a high price and buying them back at a low price and pocketing the difference. Now, if that's weird, it should be because the rest of us try and buy, you know, at a at dollar and sell at a hundred bucks and make a fortune. Uh, the shorters are saying, well, hang on, we'll sell at a hundred, buy it back at a buck and make the $99 difference. Now, that's that's kind of how it works. That the, the, the the, the process of that is more difficult and I don't really think we'll go into it in a whole lot of detail unless you really want to. Um, just, just, just understand that shorting means you make money if the shares fall rather than rise. So this horribly, um, uh, you know, for, in most people's views, certainly a whole lot of shorters' views, this was a business destined for the corporate graveyard. It was going to go broke at some point and a lot of people wanted to make a lot of money when it happened. So I said $3, $5 a share only, I don't know, maybe a year ago. Beginning of this year, Doc, I want to say shares are about six bucks, give or take. Now, as we record this, uh, the market has closed in the US, and I'm just pulling out the share price. The share price currently is, get this, so so three to five last year, six bucks at the beginning of the year, six bucks to $347 a share. I'm going to call that about a 70-fold increase, Doc, among friends. Maybe call it, I'll call it 55, call it 55. Uh, who cares, right? <laughs> it's a massive number. The shares were up. Overnight, $199. So effectively, they more than doubled overnight alone. And people would reasonably wonder if they're listening to this, how does that almost broke, destined for the corporate graveyard business, manage to go up 50-fold in the space of what, three or four weeks of the new calendar year? I'm not saying last 12 months, literally the calendar year in the month of January. Shares are going through the roof. And the shorters who bet on this are getting absolutely burned because they have to pay to borrow the shares to short them. And again, I don't want to go into that whole lot of detail, Doc, unless you think it's relative, irrelevant, sorry. Um, they borrowed the shares, so they paid for that. Then they're going to close out this position at some point because the higher the shares go, they're on the hook for the difference, by the way. They've got to pay at some point to buy these shares back. Now, if you sell them at three and buy them back at 300, that's going to cost you a lot of money. 100 times the money you made selling them, you've got to pay to buy them back if the shares stay this high. Um, so that's, I mean, that's bad enough, Doc. This is probably the most outlandish short covering story I think I've ever heard in terms of sheer dimensions. The funniest part about this, or maybe the, the strangest part or the weirdest part of the, I don't know even what to call it, is this whole thing was caused by some people on an internet discussion forum on Reddit. They basically got together and said, hey, let's mess with these shorters. Let's push the price up and watch them burn. And it seems thus far to have worked. Now, mate, I'm... I'm not even sure what to ask you, what to say next. I'm just going to leave it there. Um, have I explained it well enough? Is there anything else you want to explain? And then tell our listeners kind of why, what it means, what you're thinking. What the, what the heck do we make of this whole GameStop palaver? Yeah, so my, my number one high-level point is, I think uh, what our uh, good colleague Kevin Gandhi would say, I would say that the plumbing behind how the mechanics of this thing works is completely broken. And okay. I, I think that's number one takeaway from it's like completely broken and i think nobody has raised a flag until big hedge funds got burnt mm -hmm. <laughs> so i have no love for people who are shorting especially because <laughs> shorters use all sorts of mechanisms which seem legal right and now we have a bunch of you know maybe 20 somethings <laughs> burning them <laughs> completely because they actually understood how the plumbing works <laughs> and now all of a sudden i think we have a problem mm -hmm. oh i don't think we have a problem with the plumbing was broken for a long time so mm -hmm. to understand this I'll, i'm not trying to get too esoteric here but what does short selling mean right short selling means that there is a share that you borrow from your broker Mm -hmm. Right, which basically technically means that the share is owned by someone. Right, somebody owns that share. Somebody's a shareholder. You borrow that sh share and you sell it. That is mm -hmm. sell short. Mm 
which means now, now you remember this, the person you borrowed it from mm-hmm. owns a stake in the business, let's say has a share. You sold the share to someone, now that person also is long the share. Now we have two mm-hmm. people long for mm-hmm. one share that is sold short. Right. right. So that's the number one distortion in the market. So short short selling always causes this sort of distortion where there are effectively two owners per share. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe blockchain will fix this, but until then, um, you know, you have this distortion. Now take this. You have a number of shares that are fl- uh, free float, a number of shares that are tradable. Right. Mm-hmm. In this particular instance, the number of shares that were shorted was 140 percent of the total number of shares available. So let's say there are 100 million shares of GameStop. The short positions held a total of 140 million shares short, even though yeah. they, the 40 million of those didn't actually exist. <laughs> well, the 40 million does, did not even exist, number one. Right. And remember, now for each of those 140 million, there are two owners technically. Like, I mean, right. in, the, in the worst case, there are 280 million shareholders. If everybody demands that I want my share back, there is no way you can give the shares because the shares don't exist. Right, right. At least that's how I look at it. At a Which very is high part level. of what caused this share price to rise, right? Because everyone all of a sudden basically created the demand for these shares to push the shares up, and in doing so, raised the price and created the exact frenzy, or at least the kind of the short covering process that we're talking about, which well, sees shares go up fifty-five you, times. You know. So now the next thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to caveat this by saying, do not <laughs> go and buy GameStop. Right, do right. not go long GameStop. Do not go short GameStop. Do not do it based on options because you're going to likely lose money. And if you do not understand plumbing behind this thing and how this thing works, do not try it. But if I have to, I'm going to say something very, you know, uh, that might be controversial. But if you extend this out, the mm-hmm. fact that there are 280 million shares, as in our fictitious example, that are actually held long, mm-hmm. technically, if you think about it mathematically, the actual price for a GameStop share is now infinity. It's basically right. infinity because. Well, they, those shares don't exist, and if everybody wants them, there is no way you can actually deliver those shares. So, I think what happened here is a, a, a clear example that the way the shorting market works, and the way market makers get into the mix, and the way you know they hedge is broken. Somewhere it is completely right. broken because. And, and, you know, to, I would say full credit to those people who noticed, well, this is broken. <laughs> we're going to just exploit it because, hey, it's broken. It works that way. We're going to make it work the other way. So, um, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, uh, yeah. So I think that's really, I think, at, at a very high level, that's why now there's more complications to this because there's call options and you can hedge and there's put options and you can hedge and all those sort of things. But at a very high level, if you think of how shorting works, this is exactly what it is. So. I don't know. Like, there's a simple solution for this, right? If uh, SEC or any other regulator basically says that you cannot, sh- you should not be able to sell short more than say 20% of your company's float, right, right, right? Because that effectively is a large number of shares outstanding <laughs> that needs to be covered, right? If you just let this run rampant, this is exactly what happens, and then you can say that those people colluded or whatever. But I mean, you know. There was the other side of the trade that was also colluding in some sense, right? I mean, you know, and here's the final point about GameStop. Like, you know, people think it's going to go bankrupt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you, Scott, this and, you know, don't cheat. Do you know how much <laughs> revenue GameStop made um, in the last 12 months? I cannot Google fast enough to cheat, mate. So I'll say, no, I do not. You tell me. Okay. $5 billion of revenue. Wow. This is not a company yeah. that is making... $10 million of revenue, $100 million of revenue, right? Yep. The, this there is company a business has, 
well, this company has been perennially dead. This is the dead company that I call dead for like last decade. <laughs> its revenue, its revenue used to be ten billion dollars or something like that, and it's been slowly, slowly falling. But you know what? This is not this is not type of company that goes bankrupt overnight. Mm. This is not like you know. This is not a business that's completely broken. That there's an opportunity here. It has got enough life that it could actually survive, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not a business that has like it has four or five hundred million dollars of cash on its balance sheet. Yes, it has a billion dollars of debt, but you know this is a revenue generating business. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you value it, maybe it's worth I don't know twenty dollars, thirty dollars, whatever it is. But it it is again very strange that this thing would be. 150% shorter you know mm-hmm. uh, i'm just saying the other side here is like what is the like shorting at 150% basically means that again you're trying really hard really desperately hard to try the drive the price down like there is a fair value for this thing right this is not worth $2 this is probably worth maybe 50 somewhere between 15 and $30 is probably its right price right? right but somebody has been trying or some people or some group of people and you know i don't know have been trying to drive the price down uh, and, and that's what it, so I mean you know there's always two sides to a story like I looked up the numbers and I said this doesn't look like you know this is not imminently bankrupt mm-hmm. with like you know this is not a hundred billion dollar debt story right uh, you know this is another mediocre business maybe I don't know like you know I haven't looked at it in detail enough just just you know look at the numbers yeah the margins are not great but it's like you know slowly declining <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you're not going to buy a retailer anytime soon, but to your point, that doesn't mean necessarily the business is worth zero or going, going broke anytime soon. Yeah, but it, yeah. It, like going broke, I'm almost certain it's not going to go broke immediately, right? I, you know, um, it almost seems to me that if the price is driven down, that the whole intent is to basically freeze the capital market for that, you know, which in return basically means that they can't raise capital if they need to raise capital, right? Uh, yeah. And things like that. So, I, I mean, yeah. It is a fascinating story, mate. It is, it is one of those stories. So, you know, the, the, the whole price mechanism works that people buy shares, the share price goes up, and the higher the share price grows, the bigger the liability the shorters have because they've got to buy the shares back at some point. And as the price goes up higher and higher, the potential bill, you know, they almost got this invoice that, that perpetually, you know, goes up as the share price rises. And the aim of this group was to effectively make the shorters what they call cover. So at some point, if you're short some shares, it goes from a buck to two. Okay, well, that's cost me a dollar a share. Now it goes to four, now to 10, now to 20, now to 50, now to 100. As it goes up, the size of the, the, the check I've got to write goes up astronomically. And at some point, their, their view is, and frankly, it seems to have happened overnight, that they could cause enough pain for those shorts. They would have to cover that short, close that short position, buy back the shares. And in doing so, by the way, that also pushes the share price up further because then the shorters have to buy the shares while everyone else is also buying the shares, and that just further exacerbates the problem. So the shorters are going to lose a small, small fortune, or maybe a, a large fortune. And two companies, apparently, I saw reports this morning, mate, two had covered that short had closed those positions. So that that part of what probably drove the price up 130% overnight alone. Um, by the way, this went from a small cap company to a large cap in 24 hours. Not went straight through mid cap on the, on the way. To, this is not yesterday, this is a couple of days ago. Um, in, in, in a single trading session, went from small through medium, closed at large, such was the size of the gain here. Um, so that's so to your point, that's causes the shorters the problem. And then your, your, your recommendation about or your suggestion not to buy the shares in either direction is also true because you know what happens? Let's say this is worth, let's say Doc is hopelessly um, pessimistic. Let's say this is worth 100 bucks a share and rather than 20 or 50, you said. It's now 350, right? Now, when... The, the 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 buying mania panic goes away when there's no more buyers left to buy the shares 
and all of a sudden people think, actually, we should start thinking about how much this is genuinely worth and we're not going to pay more than that. In, I don't know how long it takes. I don't know how, you know, how, many, how much volatility there is in the meantime. But all this being equal, the shares will settle roughly around the fair value of about 100 bucks. And so you could have a situation where not only did the shorters lose a fortune, but then it, you know, they had to sell their shares to somebody else to close the position. Or they, I suppose they could hold them if they wanted to, but they probably didn't. They probably closed up short and then sold the shares. So guess what? The people who went long then lose out and probably, look, if it, if it fell to 100, which is super generous, what's that? Still a you know, two-thirds loss? So, not only, so, so you have the situation where the shorters get burnt and then the longs get burnt. Um, I wrote an article about this yesterday, mate, and I had someone ask me on Facebook, how is it possible that both of them lose? This is exactly how, and this is why this is such a dangerously stupid game for anybody to be playing. Now, uh, you and I have our views on short selling, Doc. Um, you're a little more uh, rabid about it than I am, I think, if I, to be fair. Though I would, I, I would go further than you and I would ban all derivatives tomorrow, including all options other than on physical products. So uh, we, have our, we have our extremes in different directions, but we're, we're broadly aligned that, you know, the, the problem is not like, like all of these things. The problem is rarely with the tool. The problem is usually with the abuse of the tool and whether that's short selling or something else. Um, you know, it's, it's reasonable for people to say that, you know, longs can, I'll say conspire, um, to push share prices up by putting out positive reports and getting media to report it and, you know, lots of positive press and PR and social media. Uh, it's equally, it's possible to do both both sides. So I'm not blind to that. Um, but the distortion of the market probably is the bit that just got me, mate. I think, you know what I hate most about this story is that We've been spending, you know, I've been spending my career, you've been your career, trying to convince people investing is a good idea. It's sensible, it's thoughtful, it's smart. You can make a decent amount of long-term money by compounding at reasonable rates for very long periods of time. Uh, you know, and people said to us, yeah, but that market, that's just a casino. We said, no, 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 it's not really. It's, you know, it's, it's this and it's that. Um, what, what I hate about this whole story, mate, is that a, a decent group of people are going to look at this story and go, thank God I never bought shares and I'm never going to. Look what happens if you do. And that's the bit that really drives me bananas on this whole story. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any any of that. I think, again, just a reminder to our listeners, don't play the GameStop, or actually I would oh, say that please. don't play any of the other games. <laughs> because right, there are exactly. a bunch of, you know, yes. because you might think that, oh, I want to be on the next GameStop, you know. Mm-hmm. And like, if you want to go long, maybe, you know, speculate with money that you can afford to lose completely to zero. Yeah. Uh, and I would definitely advise against, you know, shorting, uh, anything that's derivative, where your uh, where your where your liability can be very large, right? You know, so you, if your liability can be very large, do not play that game. Uh, you know, overnight actually more bizarre than um, oh, no. than GameStop. So GameStop, I, I, I thought uh, GameStop, I, I I don't think is going bankrupt anytime soon. It may be a declining business. Uh, there's this movie chain called AMC. Oh, that's right. So kind of our, our their version of event cinemas in the US, right? Yeah which I think is nearly on the verge of bankruptcy. Right. Uh, that was up 240% or something like that overnight. Oh, man. Uh, so, and, and apparently that one again has like, you know, 100 some percent short interest. Mm. And again, mm. you know, so mm. some people are probably going through the list of <laughs> shorted stocks and saying, well, I'm going to play that one. That's a very, <laughs> very dangerous place to be. Uh-huh. If you are speculating, please speculate with <laughs> by buying stock because you can, you're, you're, you're up, you're, your maximum liability is the amount you put in or, or maybe oh, buying, uh, buying calls. Again, the liability is how much you put in, <laughs> but mm. don't, don't, go for unlimited liability because that can come back and hurt you really big time. It is it is just phenomenal. And I, oh man, I hadn't heard the ANC news, mate. And that, this is the thing, right? So you get a whole group of people who say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's stupid. I'm not going to invest. That's terrible. 
a whole other group of people say, this is awesome. I'm going to make a, a fortune in 24 hours. I'm going to go and buy this next thing, AMC or something else. I'm going to make a fortune. They're going to lose money. So you've got people who won't invest and don't make money. People who do it, try and, I'll say invest in air quotes, play this silly bloody game and lose money. <laughs> I mean, for all the, all the hard work we're trying to do to say people, just, just keep it simple, do it properly. You know, I've never shorted, I will never short my entire life. I'm almost certain. Um, just, 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 you know, buy quality companies at decent prices, add more when they're doing well, let time do its thing. You know, just because, here's what I wrote yesterday, mate, it was basically just because some people are treating it as a casino, just because in the dark corners of the ASX or the, the, the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, some stupid people are doing stupid things. Don't believe that's the stock market, right? Don't fall for the headlines that say, look what happened on the stock market today. You need to read that as, look what happened in a dark, stupid corner of the stock market today, while the rest of us, invested normally got on with business and, and made some money i think that's that's me if, uh, desperately if i can get that through to our listeners um that's the only thing i want to do we spent way too much time in this story already because it is kind of fascinating and weird and people want to know about it including by the way it was um it was greg i think that asked me the question um gary gary sorry gary who asked me to cover it and we're going to do it anyway but thanks for the suggestion gary hopefully we've done it justice mate because that was a um <laughs> it's a hell of a story uh, as our colleague Andrew Leggett said uh, name check another one of the guys that we work with um, someone will write a book maybe about this eventually it'll be a hell of a book to read um, If it, if, uh, that's not probably book length at the moment but it'll be a heck of an article if nothing else and uh, yeah it, I, it's got somewhere to play out mate maybe that's the worst part of this um, look if some if some dodgy shorters get taken out of the market then I have no problem with that potentially um, but I, I hope the price isn't too big for the rest of people who otherwise might be making sensible regular <laughs> normal investments are getting rich slowly uh, rather than getting scared away or, or going broke in a hurry yes i'm going to throw one uh, crazy stat another crazy stat yeah, that oh, actually yeah, i discovered this is this is actually pretty crazy the total dollar value of uh game stock trading today or overnight yeah. Yeah. 32 billion dollars okay Oof. the total oh. dollar value of apple volume trading today yeah. is 19 billion dollars <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, and there was a nice name going around on the internet saying, well, maybe, you know what, Game, Game, GameStop is eventually going to be able to buy whatever company it wants to, stock price is going to be so large. <laughs> I, you know, and that's, the, I mean, like, you, you made the point yesterday, and I, I mean, I, I have to believe it's not going to happen, but as you said, I mean, you know, if, somebody, if GameStop can find some people stupid enough to raise money at the current share price, it'd actually be the best corporate deal ever. If you literally convince a whole lot of people, you know, hey, the share price is 325 bucks. Can we have some, can you raise capital at 300, please? You get a discount. Um, <laughs> I, 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 you know what? These days, who knows? I mean, it, it, the Wall Street Bets pro- crowd will probably subscribe to it just to keep the share price high. I, I have no idea, um, but it would be a heck of a thing. And yeah, exactly. You imagine what they could buy with that money if they did it, um, all, all because a couple of people on on, uh, on Reddit got together. Look, you know, and it, 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 to, to your point, if it was done by professionals, this would be collusion and it would be illegal. So there is something to that about the market regulation regulation and i desperately hope that out of this some regulators are smart enough to work out how to better control what is a distortion of the market because the the bottom i mean you know like people can do what they can do the market is what it is but the market's not designed for this crap like it's not it's not supposed to be a circumstance where people can short 140 percent of a company or that a group of people on the internet can destroy short funds by playing silly buggers with the share price i mean they, they're possible because as you say the plumbing allows it the plumbing, the air quotes, plumbing of the market allows it. If you if you know how the money flow works, you can create these sort of outcomes. But you know, the market's not there for people to take advantage of distortions and things that aren't that were unintended, right? And so, hopefully, the regulators find a way to better, best sort this out and, and 
I won't say prevent happening again because I care about either side of the trade. I really, again, the individual people I don't care about, the impact on the market I care about. But um, you know, I don't really mind what happens here. I'm not in either camp from a you know from a from either an ethical, moral, or financial perspective. But I do hope we can you know use this example to say right that is one area the market gets distorted. Retail investors who get caught up in this. In this case, you know, no retail investors that were already in GameStop were hurt. In fact, they've been helped a lot. If they, if they bought it five bucks, expecting to go to 15, they sold at 300, good luck to them. Um, but, you know, in a different circumstance, a distortion like this could really hurt meaningful amounts of people. So I'm just hopeful, as you say, the SEC um, and others around the world, including ASIC here in Australia, do learn something from this and put reasonable guards in place so that the market doesn't get distorted and, and, and is misused for something it wasn't intended to be used for. Fair to say? I think it's fair. You're a good man. Mate, while I'm, while I'm there, though, I, I did talk about an article I wrote yesterday. So um, there's our chance to share our socials. I do share those on the socials. If you want to chat with Doc, uh, ask him a question, leave him a comment, follow his good, wonderful tweeting. Uh, in fact, on a couple of companies we'll talk about in a minute. I've seen already. I've just checked your feed then, mate. So uh, you can go to at Anirvan Mahanti and find out what Doc's been tweeting about. By the time this goes to air, of course, those tweets will be uh, not long gone, but they'll be, they'll be somewhere down in the feed. Uh, but jump on to at Anirban Mahanti on Twitter. At uh, TMF Scott P is mine. Uh, I throw my regular articles up there, uh, as well as comments on all manner of things. As I've warned people before, I don't stick just to investing, so be warned. Uh, hopefully it's useful. I, I try not to rant or be too un- unhinged, but um, I do my, my thoughts do tend to wander across multiple domains, put it that way. Um, or at The Motley Fool AU is our corporate account. You get a good combination of everything there. Um, some, some of the stuff that Doc and I uh, write, we read tweet others of it is just stuff from the, the website or other things so there are twitter accounts if you're on facebook uh, i'm scott phillips money all one word i'm not scott phillips trading by the way that's somebody else so don't get if you do if you do google scott phillips don't go for scott phillips trading very different guy unfortunately the same name uh, scott phillips money on facebook or the motley fool australia is our corporate facebook account and if you're on the gram you're on the instagram i'm at tmf scott p and the Motley Fool is at the Motley Fool AU. So there's there's some places to get in touch with us. As always, if you have any mailbag questions, I'll I'll, I'll give it away, Doc. I'll, I'll surprise people by letting them know mid-podcast that we are going to have a mailbag episode this Sunday. So I know you're surprised. I hope you're sitting down. Uh, there's going to be a mailbag episode. So if you want a, a question answered on the mailbag uh, or you've got some thoughts, comments, feedback, suggestions, as I always say, hit us up on any of those socials. You can, um, you can get to us that way. All right, mate, that's, uh, that's enough of, of GameStop. It is a... It's still got, still got something to play out. Well, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we're talking about this next week, quite honestly, but we'll see how we go. Mate, back to back to Australia for a second. Um, uh, so a couple of a couple of things to bear comment on. Um, I, I've got a point to make about one. The other one, really, uh, and you may have some thoughts or not. City, the, the investment bank, uh, retail bank. I don't know. What, what is City these days? Fund manager, diversified financial services conglomerate. Can I call it that? I don't really know what its core business is these days. It's a bank, right? I mean, it's a yeah. bank, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a bank cool with, the, with <laughs> lots of different... It's a, still a pretty large bank, I yeah, think. Yeah, all right. Let's call yeah. it a bank. A bank plus yeah. other stuff. Um, yeah. City so put some forecasts out uh, a couple of days ago, mate, saying they expect corporate Australia's profits to grow at 20% this year, uh, which is a phenomenally large number. Uh, obviously, though, they declined last year and the number ended up being just under 16%. So the good news, if you're... Uh, if you like these sort of things, um, is that we're going to get back to just above 2019 levels this year. Now, that's not phenomenal growth. It's not compound. It's not great. Um, but again, given the choice in March and April, if you'd said, hey, we'll be back to above 2019 levels by 2021, I, I would have taken that you know, <laughs> in, a, in a heartbeat. Uh, so that, that's good news. Now, it's a forecast. And as you said about IMF, mate, these are just forecasts. Also worth mentioning the AP Eagers, the, I think it's just called Eagers these days, actually, the, the car... Um, 
car yard kind of owner. They own a massive number of, of car yards around the country, new car yards. They've upgraded their guidance again for the second time in only six weeks. So again, people are obviously going back to the car yards. Now, there was something like 18 months of straight declines of sales. <laughs> even, even dead cats bounce, as they say. Um, this is something. Look, I, I just want to throw those two things together, mate. And my only observation was just a reminder to our listeners that we should have always expected a recovery. I didn't expect the size or pace, but we should have always respected, expected the market to recover. And it's a reminder as to why, even when the economy falls, even when profits fall in a given year, you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because any shares, even if you're not, you know, Doc, you're not a, a DCF, a discounted cash flow value guy. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere around kind of, you know, growth at a reasonable price. I'm neither the growth you look for nor am I in a deep value. I've done probably, I don't know, a few DCFs in my life, but not many in the last couple of years. Um, the future value of any company is always, or sorry, the value of company is always the value of all its future profits added together and discounted back to the present time. The question only for any investor is how much, how far out do you go and, and what, what assumptions do you make? It should have been clear to everybody and it never is. The market always gets this wrong every time there's a downturn that profits recover. And when they do, um, business gets back to normal. And so you should never say, to, you know, if if we go through a recession, businesses aren't dead forever, right? They suffer for a year, maybe two, and then things recover. So yes, share prices should be lower because you're missing out on this year's profits, but they shouldn't be so low as to pretend, expect, imagine that this bad news is here forever. And it's always worth remembering whenever share prices fall, just ask the question, hang on, does this, you know, at one point a 38% fall in the ASX, does that truly represent the, the, the you know full long-term loss of profitability. And I think at the time it was reasonably clear to most people. Uh, well, I would say most people actually, <laughs> us, <laughs> not most people, because shares shouldn't have fallen that much if that was true. Uh, and certainly the recovery has reminded us, and that's why the share prices are up, by the way. Uh, markets recovered nicely for exactly this reason, that profits came back. It went, oh, oh yeah, that 40% fall. Yeah, that was a bit overdone, wasn't it? Uh, so the lesson I hope that I want to share with our listeners, mate, is that this is... This is normal, right? This is what happens. Again, the pace, the size of the recovery, they're always different. But you should remember no company other than those were going to be permanently uh, broken in some way, shape or form by that by that recession. Um, should have been worth you know, 30, 40% less because profits were going to recover. And when they did, you should have expected, you know, I think um, Jeremy Siegel, mate, the Wharton professor said that a year's worth of profits at zero. So if you made no profit at all in a given year, your share shows you were 10% less if they went back to normal the year after. So if it was two straight years, maybe that's 20%. If it's three straight years, it's probably 25% or 26%. Um, a 40% fall is always, always overdone. Just be careful not to sell in panic. And also, by the way, if you are if you have the stomach for it, it's a really good time to look for some bargains. And I think the city numbers, just a, 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 you know, we'll see what the numbers actually are. They may be optimistic, uh, but a, a really good reminder that these things do recover. We do get back to normal quicker than most people expect and quicker, certainly, than the share prices suggest when the, the market is feeling completely pessimistic. Any thoughts on, on City or forecasts or AP Eagers or market psychology? Um, Captain, I think you have just summar summarized it so nicely. There's nothing left for me to add. I've, I've ranted. Yes, so I will just humbly <laughs> stay quiet. <laughs> You're very kind. What he means, Phil, is I've, I've talked for way too long and way too much. He's not going to add to the pain. So thank you, mate. Very, very kind of you to say. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's, um, I want to ask you a different question though, because so speaking of all of that uh, and speaking of profits and speaking of future values, 
We saw Larry Fink. The guy's got a great name for a fund manager, right? Uh, when, when you know the Finks are one of the Australia's outlaw motorcycle gangs. Uh, Larry Fink, anyway, he's, he's not one of the Finks as far as I know. Uh, came out this week, mate, and for the second or third time, talked about his. So, and BlackRock are the largest fund manager in the world. They own something like four percent of the world's stock markets by value, which is kind of phenomenal if you think about it, mate. Um, he's come out and said for the second or third time, and more strongly than than ever. That effectively, if a company doesn't have a path to net zero, so think about carbon emissions and this whole net zero idea of not emitting carbon or not emitting net carbon, um, effectively they're on the blacklist. I mean, he's you know he said, look, it has to happen. He said before we're going to talk about it, we're going to ask you about it, we want to know your plans. This is an extra step forward. This is basically saying, look, either you've got this, or we're not going to we're not going to buy your stock. Now it's not making that decision right now, and there are exceptions in some circumstances based on the way they're running their business, but. This is this is a, a ratcheting up. I'll say rhetoric. I don't even metric is in an empty rhetoric because I don't think it is. But it's a ratcheting up of of the world's views. And we've talked a little bit. I think we talked a couple of weeks ago about the the Rio Tinto, a Jack and Gorge explosion that when some Aboriginal sacred sites were destroyed and the the sea of Rio was removed, largely on the back of shareholder pressure. The the role of you know. I would normally say activist shareholders. These are very mainstream shareholders, right? These aren't the guys you think of activists. These are these are blue blood, you know, like big end of town, you know, pinstripe suit guys. These are not these are not your your your, your shaggy head hippie activists. These are the guys that are that are really making the decisions. And Larry Fink saying, look, this is all about the economics. This is not about the environment. Now, I, I hope I happen to think and hope that <laughs> actually we'll have a nice benefit for the environment. But he's just straight out saying, look, if you guys got a lot of coal on the ground. Or if you're pursuing a policy that's going to create lots of pollution, you are going to come under economic pressure either because regulations will change, consumer preferences will change, your suppliers or customers won't want to deal with you. And that's too much of a, of a, of a commercial risk for us as a fund manager to own your shares. What are your, what are your thoughts, mate? We talked about it a little bit before, but just your reflections on, on kind of this ratcheting up of expectation by the biggest fund manager in the world. I think I, think I broadly agree with what he's saying. I, I think... This has already be been under um, underway, right? So big companies already have like you know net zero goals. Um, so big companies already announced their net zero goals. They're doing a lot more for sustainability. They are, uh, and this is to some extent being driven by consumers, right? Consumers are demanding that well, you know, if you're making iPhones, then you know they should be made in a certain way. If you're, you know making something else, water bottles, then you should be made in a certain way. So consumer preference is really driving it. But I think the larger thing, I think sometimes what people don't realize, this is, you know, and often happens to me in the political debate, right, is that transformation to something else, especially something that's long-term good, actually can create enormous economic value, right? And there's economic value there to be grabbed. So it's not necessarily negative, it's negative for those unwilling to change, but I think it's a positive net-net, um, both for society and for actually for just ec- economy as a whole, right? So, um, and I think you know, I think this is just part of the pressure coming. You know, it's it's a bottom-up pressure, right? Investors who hold those shares or who invest in BlackRock basically are saying we want this. BlackRock therefore has no option but to say we want this. Um, and then just it's it's just flowing bottom up, right? So, uh, but I, but I do think there's you know this is not doom and gloom, but this is there's some economic benefits here um, as well to be had. There's there's going to be a huge number of jobs created in green and clean, 
Yeah. And and not just green and clean as we think about, you know, so green and clean doesn't mean solar and wind, right? But also the byproducts that, you know, that come out of it, right? The processes, the new technologies, um, manufacturing jobs and so on. So I think there's a lot mm. of economic activity that could be tied to this as well. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Are you... Um, are you how are you factoring net zero, climate change, carbon, social responsibility into your investing? You talk about some of the commercial opportunities. Are, are they by, are those other things byproducts or kind of unrelated causes to the same outcomes? Do you simply say, well, hang on, company X is doing some great things over here. They happen to be either for environmental reasons or not, but the, the good thing is they're simply happening and those are positive, as you say, business opportunities. Um, do, do you consider it? Do you do you think about it? How, how do you, if you do, how, how do you kind of factor in some of those uh, soft, fuzzy, squishy uh, factors uh, that, that quickly are becoming real hard commercial ones? Yeah, so like I'm not a, uh, maybe we, you and I are very similar in this, like I'm not a ethical first investor in the sense mm-hmm. that, like, I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. Everybody should be an ethical investor <laughs> from the <laughs> ethics of investing point of view. What I mean by... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> just to clarify, because it could, it could sound wrong completely. Yeah. Um, and this is, re- this is recorded media, right? So <laughs> uh, uh, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm saying ethical, I'm saying ethical investing in the sense yeah, of yeah. like companies that are doing the ethical yes. thing. Yeah. In my opinion, this is, this is like, you know, whether you invest in a cigarette company or not, I don't want to make that, I'm not that type of investor. Like if, if I think a cigarette company, you can make money off it because it's a good investment, I would actually do it. Like, I mean, you know, um, so I personally am not making those decisions in terms of, you know, I'm not actually, it's not a big dial mover for me as a qualitative or quantitative factor. But what I do look at is what are the opportunities there, right? So, you know, for example, I do think like if I'm investing in a consumer goods company and that consumer goods company is actually destroying its brand by not doing the right thing, mm. well, that's a negative, net negative to invest in that company, right? So I mean, that's a consideration. So I almost think of it from a negative point of view, right? So if the consumer goods company is doing the wrong thing, it's going to deplete its brand value and therefore, you know, you need to account for that. But I'm not explicitly going and saying, oh, I want to invest in that consumer goods company because they're doing it. I'm, I'm almost assumed that people should be doing it. <laughs> if they're not yeah, yeah, yeah. in that club, then yeah. they're actually meaningfully hurting themselves uh, from a brand point of view. Then the other thing I think about is, I just think about opportunities that exist because of new things, right? And this is not just in sustainability or um, or in any other area, right? I just, think of, I just think that new is how the world moves forward, right? So if it's like, you know, I, I, you know, while I don't invest much in biotech, I do think about new, say for example, vaccine technology, right? What can mRNA do that traditional vaccines can't do? And therefore that creates opportunities, not just in COVID today, but it creates opportunities elsewhere. So I, I'll try to look for, for new technology that's driving the world forward. And some of that happens to be in this sort of, you know, um, um, in sustainable, energy sort of area but it doesn't necessarily it's not like so i'm not trying to be like blackrock saying i won't invest in it because you didn't do that yeah. right uh you know i have recommendations in like gaming stocks for example and some for some people gaming you know or or wagering is yeah. um is an issue right yeah and but i try to separate those two you know so yeah i like that mate i i'm very similar to you i tend to work 
on an exclusionary basis rather than the other way around and not on a not on a purely ethical framework perspective but more as you kind of already pointed out in the first part of your answer but but right through is if if they if they if their actions or, or likely actions are going to end up having causing commercial harm or alternatively add to commercial outcomes then uh, you know it's a purely commercial lens for me so to some degree like fink and blackrock if I know companies are doing nothing and I expect that over time that's going to be bad for their business, either regulators or governments or consumers or suppliers are going to walk away from them because of that, that's a really big commercial risk for them as a business and for me as an investor to my shares. So, And, and equally, if they're doing things that are making them more likely to be um, successful because of that. So I've used the example before. I own shares in Australian Ethical uh, Investments. They're a fund manager. Um, they invest ethically. I don't actually think they, the investors need to do that for what it's worth as, as a pure filter. But the fact that I that people will send them money because they're doing that is good for their business. And so I'm happy to buy their shares on that basis equally. Um, if I had a business that was doing something horrible and even if it was making money doing it, but I thought that was going to go away at some point because of consumer or political or regulated pressure, um, then it, you know I would simply not buy the share. So I try and be straight commercial, and we do that with our recommendations too, Matt. We don't we don't put arbitrary filters over things like that. We let our members make those decisions for themselves. But yeah, I completely agree. Anything else uh, from you on that one, mate? No, I have nothing to add to that, mate. We've got a few minutes left. Now, <laughs> I had a lot more on my on my diary, but I did promise our, our listeners that it was Christmas Day for you, mate. Now I. I don't know if we've got enough time on this podcast to uh, to do this. We might have to change memory cards and uh, cut this into 45 different episodes. I'm not sure. We'll see how we go. But this week, uh, I think it was, uh, was it Wednesday night? We saw, no, Thursday, Tuesday night, we saw Microsoft report. And mm-hmm. then overnight, uh, well, let's just say um, a fruit company and a, and a company named after a master electrician uh, released earnings this morning, our time. Apple and Tesla now... Our long-term listeners may have heard you mention those companies once or twice. They may know you have something of a passing interest in those businesses. And when I said, hey, what do you want to talk about today? You said, well, Apple and Tesla, of course. So, mate, I'm going to simply ask you a very simple question. Then I'm going to go away, get a cup of tea, have a sleep, um, file my nails, do my washing, come back in three or four days' time and, and see what you're up to. Uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the floor, mate. And and I guess the the, the what the headline for me was, Big, big numbers from three of the biggest tech-related businesses. Now, very different tech-related businesses, but simply tech-related businesses on the planet. Um, hard to go past them individually and as a group. And to some degree, big tech in the US just getting it done. Now, over to you, mate. Yeah, so like, let's briefly talk about Microsoft first because it reported a day before. Uh, you know, how does a business of that scale and size, it delivered something like, you know, 17% revenue growth in the quarter, uh, earnings growing at some 30%. That's just incredible, right? And I calculated some free cash flow of $8 billion or $10 billion in just one quarter. That's just unbelievable, right? But then... You, you uh, asked exactly yeah. how does it do it, but but how does it do it? What, what how, how does a company that is 40 years old, we kind of, you know, most people left it for dead in 2000, 2005. It was yesterday's company. How, how does it deliver those sort of numbers? Well, it's this constant reinvention, right? I mean, constant, you know, changing from, like, I mean, taking, taking what you have, that's what you're great at, but then trying to roll with the times, right? So they, they're great at Windows software, mm-hmm. uh, be it, you know, PowerPoint, be it Word, be it Excel. 
or rolling that to subscription, rolling that to, to the cloud, making mm. it more uh, is part of it. But along the, along the way, also reinventing themselves in other areas, right? Whether it's gaming, for example, like Microsoft is big in gaming, right? Um, mm. And then you, you think about uh, Microsoft, you think about their Azure platform, mm. their cloud platform, not accelerated during the pandemic, it is growing at 50%, 50% at tens of billions <laughs> no, of dollars per quarter. Yeah, this is yeah. unbelievable yeah. Uh, growth, right? So it, it just, it's just getting it done. Like, you know, Microsoft, mm-hmm. uh, and then you look at, you know, you say, well, this, this sort of company trades at like 35 times earnings. I mean, if you can grow earnings at 30%, or let's like, say if you grow it at 20%, but <laughs> it's only 35 times earnings. I mean, yeah. that is- Comes down pretty fast. But pretty, comes down pretty fast. That makes a lot of sense as to, you know, uh, and, and, and as, as I like to say that these companies are at that, that scale, they've just figured out how to, I think that's the key thing is they have figured out how to deliver growth at massive scale. Mm-hmm. They're not letting their organizational size come in the way. So they've got basically multiple different companies inside them, right? They've got the Surface PC division, they've got the, um, you know, the Windows uh, software division, they've got the, mm-hmm. um, the commercial cloud, which basically deals with uh, both Azure and on, and all the other things that they've got on, on uh, from Word and things like that. Mm-hmm. They've got LinkedIn. They've just got all these little things that they're, you know, they're all delivering value, which is which is tremendous. So I, I think that, that is really, really excellent. This morning, for example, we had Apple report, right? I'm an Apple in one. Can I, can I keep you on Microsoft just for a sec, Doc? Can I, can I keep? Yeah. A, I know you want to get Apple. I, I want you to get there. Um, well, I, listening to about Microsoft, I think you've, you've mentioned this before. So I'm, this is a bit of a Dorothy Dixon. This is a question to let, to let you say what you said before, to some degree, um, to reinforce the point. But it, you know. It, Microsoft isn't just doing more of what it used to do. And there is something about none of this was inevitable. It's not the case that, well, they were big in 1985, so of course they're still big now. In fact, plenty of businesses have been big, Kodak, General Electric, BlackBerry. Um, There's a decent roll call of businesses that were something and are now close-ish to, I wouldn't say nothing, but they're relatively irrelevant. Um, What is it that, that you can't talk about what Microsoft did, but... Culturally, business-wise, um, what is the investment lesson on this one? Because if you said, "Well, just just stick with every business that's big, and they'll keep they'll keep doing okay," maybe by the way, net net that works because maybe for every BlackBerry and and, um, uh, and GE and, and GM loss, you you pick up a, an Apple or Tesla or Microsoft. If you got all of them, you still do okay. But is there is there a is there a kind of a a theme? And maybe that comes to the Apple Tesla conversation in a second. But is there a theme from the Microsoft story around how you might have seen this coming or? What made Microsoft different and better than those who didn't manage to make these sort of changes? Is is there anything that you can kind of you know Blockbuster went broke while Netflix is flying? Microsoft has had a couple of different lives, right? And people wrote it off as the Windows thing when everyone was going to go Google and Apple and Linux and you know, and yet we're talking about now as as the reborn, you know, um, oh, gee, what's forty plus years old now? Um, it's got a spectacular second, third act, whatever we're up to right now, a bit like Apple as well. Is there anything about the Microsoft story that should have told us or we can look back and if we, even if we didn't see it at the time can say that's something we should look for next time? Well, so, so there's no good answer to this one, unfortunately, right? But like... Yeah. That's a shame. Have <laughs> a pen out. I was well, ready. Like, okay, so, I, I, so here's the problem. My problem is that I've only looked at... And the reason I can't answer this question definitively, or at least with my own thinking, which is going to be biased from my point of view, yeah, right. I could have answered the same question if you had asked for Apple, right? Okay. Um, okay. Because that's a 
the company I have followed more closely. But Microsoft, yeah. at least here's my rough answer for Microsoft, right? You look at a company like Microsoft and you realize that this company has tremendous scale. Even like five years ago, yeah. the earnings multiple probably on this company was less than 20. It was still growing both revenue and earnings. And you could mm. see it. Whether or not it was disclosed properly or not is another question, but you could see that this is a company growing at a massive scale, growing its revenues, growing its earnings, quarter after quarter, whether you like it or not, it's in doing some mundane things, but it was doing that. What, I'm, what I think is important is when a company is growing at that scale, doesn't have too much debt, has a huge balance of cash, that's a huge amount of optionality to have. And if you have that optionality, you can actually afford to buy stocks in these sort of companies. Yeah. a relatively cheap price and you've you basically got well upside i win a lot downside i don't lose much right and that's a really really nice spot to be if you're an investor right i mean so i think that is what the microsoft story that is sort of what the apple story is right and nice. again like i have talked up microsoft to many people i personally don't own microsoft so, uh, or i actually have some short puts but that short puts only make me a uh, limited amount of money but Again, like I mean, this is like this is a company I've followed from a distance. I know what's going on, but I don't know. I don't have enough. I have not studied enough, and I don't understand. And plus, I don't like Microsoft software products, anyways. Yeah, right. So all of those things have gotten into a way that I didn't invest <laughs> in it. But yeah, yeah. Again, it's one of those things where I think, well, like to to answer your question another way. There is always an IBM that can stagnate, but there's always a Walmart <laughs> which can reinvigorate itself, right? But I think yeah, you need to in, yeah. look at individual opportunities and think about them. And it requires a bit of studying, which is, I think, mm. I think mm. which is the answer, really. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, it, most people wouldn't know. So I've just pulled up some numbers for the fun of it. Apple, I mean, Microsoft, sorry, is up 346% over the past five years. Um, I mean, you can't add those numbers together, but it's not 70% a year because the compounding works differently. But that's probably a good 50% a year, mate, something like that, I suppose, if I was going to try and guesstimate what that looks like over over five years. For the first four years of that, Microsoft and Apple actually were neck and neck. If you if you said to someone between 20, was it 16 and 2020, these businesses went neck, neck, for, neck and neck in terms of share price growth. Um, I think it would have surprised a hell of a lot of people because no one was talking about Microsoft. It wasn't the cool kid. It didn't have the tech. It didn't have the fun stuff. And again, I'm not, not comparing to Apple for any other way other than to say sometimes the, the, the business, as you say, the big you know, business with lots of optionality just getting it done, um, it doesn't have to be the coolest, the coolest tech, the coolest thing, the headline story that everyone's talking about. You can still make a lot of money from some of those big guys that are, that are still working. It was the optionality thing I thought you would talk about, man. That's, that's the one you've talked about before is if you've got some cash flow, some reliable cash flow, something like a, a Microsoft for, uh, Office, for example, or Windows, and you've got some smart people, you've got a lot of chances to get something wrong about while you're trying to find the thing that goes right. And it's also true that from 2000, 2015 or so, Microsoft underperformed dramatically because the share price was just stupidly high in 2000 because everyone got excited about it. But it managed to find a way after a couple of failures, by the way, did Microsoft phone, right? Back in the back in the day, um, the Windows phone, does it still exist? Maybe it does, I'm not sure. Um, but you know, it, it, it had it had a couple of goes at trying to find something. And it seems like the combination of services, the, the kind of cloud presence of the Office suite and the Azure cloud itself 
were the, the the answer, but it had enough optionality, as you say, enough balance sheet strength, enough revenue generation to give it enough chances to get something right. And, and this is the result. Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, again, like, I mean, one could make a similar argument. So one could make a similar argument that that maybe is going to happen with uh, with IBM, for example. Like IBM right. has gone nowhere for the last That's five years, actually. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, I mean... I, Again, I think there's an individual company-specific view huh, and a bit yeah. of an understanding of what's going on. And yeah, yeah. maybe it's a mix of having enough things but not too many things, right? <laughs> yeah, like, right, I mean, yeah. is, is, yeah. Uh, is, so there's a lot of ifs and buts there. There's, again, I don't think there's a perfect answer, uh, unfortunately, for that. Right, I'm not going to ask you more Microsoft questions because you've got two more important companies to talk about. Let's go to which one's next. Well, let's talk about Apple. So Apple, I think, Ken, this was like an unbelievable quarter record, all-time record mm. of mm. $111 billion of revenue in one quarter, up 21%. That's a earnings, growth. I mean, 20% earn- big and from a large number is big, but the sheer dollar value of incremental sales... Like they added twenty one, called twenty one billion. Probably uh, yeah, different base, but close enough to that. Uh, yeah, they added what fifteen, twenty billion dollars worth of incremental cash revenue year on year. <laughs> Not only they have to do last year's revenue, they found another twenty one billion odd, twenty billion odd dollars to fill the coffers with. That is that is amazing. And then the and here's the thing, right? Earnings per share up thirty five percent, basically incredible. hitting a new record, right? Um, and this is a company that's buying back its shares and can't buy back its shares fast enough because it just keeps generating so much cash. It's cash. It's just in, in, enormous, difficult. You know, yeah. as a shareholder, I was going to say, it's such a yeah. you know, difficult problem they've got. You know, they can't just yeah, figure right. out what to do with the cash. So <laughs> this is, again, a phenomenal business record on pretty much every side. Um, yeah, right. You know, and you know, I remember talking about this business in 2015, 2016, and so yeah. much talk about... Oh, they, you know, the peak iPhone. Like, I mean, I tell all those people, so what? Look at the results. Um, and The pivot, the pivot you know, for Apple, mate, to my mind, and I, I'm no, I claim no expertise. Obviously, you're the, you're the resident expert. But the, the pivot to, to the Microsoft kind of example to me, and obvious, right, but seems to be the move to services. If they were just selling phones still, the, the results would have been way less impressive than they were. Their ability to take a loyal consumer base and a great phone and then turn into recurring revenue with services was that the masterstroke? Well, see, I think that's not the masterstroke. See, that is what okay. the masterstroke everybody wants to talk about, and that's what okay. you know, uh, Wall Street people. I think. See, here's the thing, right? Everybody looked at Apple as the iPhone company, and I've said right. this many times. This, this is an unpopular view, but I think this is the correct view, in my opinion. Apple is not the iPhone company. Apple is the right. human computer interaction company. In other right. words, as long as there is need for computers in humans' lives. Apple is going to continue succeeding because that's the core of the company. Right. And in other words, every functionality that requires computers, Apple is going to be able to find a way to make its presence felt. And it's going to be able to make its presence felt in ways that other companies can't do because they can't think okay. like that. That is Apple's okay. upside. And if you realize that upside, then you would see that, well, okay, maybe they can do something in healthcare, which is been one of the big drivers, right? Their wearable business is growing at like, what, 80% or 50%, some ridiculous number. Right. Services just happens to be an incidental, nice incidental thing to have around it. Mm-hmm. But everything is still really around helping humans with computers. 
right? Which opens them to other options, right? And I think, see, this is what I call variant perception and thinking, right? It's not about, you know, services and this or that and numbers. That's what most people do. I'm going to look at the numbers and think, you've got to think about what the company actually does. In this particular case, if you look at Apple's mission, this is exactly what they do. They're a human computer interaction company in, you know, making computing easy for people by design, by making these things gadgets that are beautiful and helping people's lives. And, and, and that is a very positive mission. And that's a long-term mission because that basically means your time is infinite, right? You can expand into any different direction as long as computers and humans are involved. Now, I know you're passionate about this, but I'm going to give you another go because I think that's all true. But without services, it doesn't do anything like the sort of growth it's doing, right? I mean, I think if you, if it had, if it was the remaining just, well, I say just air quotes, just the hardware company with a great OS and a great device, sales are what, $10, $20 billion less than they are now? I mean, I take your point about the culture of the company driving particular results, but if they just stuck with the devices business and the and the OS that goes, but I don't mean to, I don't mean just as in, in in any pejorative way. So don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, you you can't get these numbers without services, can you? Isn't that isn't that the greatest contributor to incremental sales over the last three or five years from that 2015, 16 You're talking about? Oh well, no, right? Because in 2015 okay. they didn't have wearables, right? Yep. So wearables today is a 13 billion per quarter business, right? right? It's probably larger revenue per year than most Australian companies. Sure. That did not exist. Is that more right? than services revenue? Um, it's just a tiny hair below its services revenue. Okay. Services revenue is like $16 billion per quarter, right? Okay. Here's the thing though, the services part actually did exist, right? iCloud did exist. It's not that they mm. did not exist, oh, sure, right? Sure. So, but some of the, some of the uh, subscription stuff that has done well, hasn't it? I mean, the Apple Musics and the, the TV, it's launched. I mean, it, it's getting into the finding ways yeah. of getting recurring revenue from its customers in a way that it doesn't rely on a phone upgrade cycle as much as the, the, the constant interaction with its its ecosystem, its devices. Yeah, that's all That's all true. But I think they're all incidental on the fact that, see, I, unless you can expand and find ways to interact with people in multiple different ways, mm the services revenue does not grow, right? I mean, services revenue yeah. grows because the variable revenue grows. The variable revenue grows because the services revenue is all part of it. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you, yeah. you know, like, I mean, the if you think about the the iPhone line, right? I mean, still yeah. it's the iPhone company, right? I mean, iPhone basically was $65 billion out of the $111 billion, right? But <laughs> it, yeah. it, it, it is still the fact that you have 50% of the company doing other things and mm-hmm. you have you have segments of the business that did not exist, right? Wearable homes and accessories, most of it was pretty small um, or almost non-existent um, five years ago, right? So I, I think that's the beauty, right? And they could, you know, throw another sort of wearables or something in and then drive that segment, which in turn drives services, mm-hmm. which in, try, in turn drives iPad, which in turn then drives um, <laughs> Mac. And then once you buy one Apple product yeah. and you integrate it into your home, you pretty much, yeah, you, right. know, lock, you know, you're likely to buy other Apple things. So I think yeah, yeah. it's it's all of that. So mm-hmm. I don't know, I think the, that's, I think each plays a role, but I think the larger driver is that their ability mm-hmm. to open new segments, right? Mm-hmm. Wearables, in my opinion, is basically a door to healthcare. That is, you know, telehealth or whatever you want to call it. That's right, a huge right. opportunity. Nice one. Let's let's go to the last of the trio. Last but not least, I'm sure. 
Um, I'll ask you to ask you to share out right the end, maybe now, which of the companies you thought was the best set of results. Not necessarily the best company, not the highest quality company, just the the best set of results. But let's before we do that, I'll, I'll leave that to the end so we can uh, keep our listeners in suspense. Uh, the Tesla results, mate, out also this morning. Uh, seemed like a really good set of numbers. Uh, your thoughts on on what kind of highlights and if there are any lowlights, I doubt there are any. But if there are, uh, what, what were some of the highlights and lowlights from the numbers? Well, the highlight, I'm very excited about the refreshed interior and exterior for the Model S and the Model X. <laughs> I, I love I love the fact that they've put a steering which looks like a joystick, um, <laughs> and and that they've and the and the, the and the fact that they put now screens not just in the front seat but also in the back seats. That was good. Now um, you did say you did say on on Slack you're going to buy one. Are you, uh, can I hold you to that? Is your wife listening? Uh, well, I think we're probably going to buy the X now that they. Hey, um, there we go. The, uh, you know, <laughs> in due course, it's in our list. Uh, although there I did look go, at nice. the the delivery into Australia, it says delivery in twenty twenty two. Well, that oh, that wow. kind of is not good. Put your name down quick. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, so so here's the thing. I think I think that people, uh, you know, this is I think true for most growth companies, but this is also true for hyper growth companies, right? Basically, your um, your revenues. Or your free cash flow sort of trails your operating cash flow, which you know it trails, uh, you know, basically revenue, right? So you're gonna get revenue growth first, and and revenue growth is being driven by all sorts of costs and investments that you're making, mm-hmm. which in turn then drives your operating uh, cash flow. But then you know you're still making capex, which is you know sort of reducing your free cash flow. Uh, but what the beauty here is that you start seeing this uh, trend now. If you look at a yearly 12, you know, the, the, my guess was that they're going to do about $3 billion of free cash flow, which is what they delivered, a little less than that, $2.9 billion of free cash flow this year, right? Mm-hmm. And if you compare that with one year ago, it was just about a billion dollars, right? I'm going to so, slow you down for a second, mate, because there's some really important terms that you kind of skip through there really quickly, which are, are important. So. The, let's define ourselves. So revenue, of course, is just is, is sales. We know that. Yes. Operating cash flow is effectively the the sales you're making less the operating costs. So the, the, the cost of actually building cars and getting them out the door. Now, I know Tesla does more than that, batteries and stuff, but let's yeah. keep it simple. So operating, operating cash flow is just literally the, op, the, the cash generated by the operations themselves. And then free cash flow is the operating cash flow taking off the investments you're making in things like plants and equipment, the, the stuff you need to actually invest in to do the work that you do. So they're not part of operating cash flow because that's that's literally just the the sheet metal and the electronics on the new joysticks for the cars. That's the operating costs. The 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 investment costs, if you like, that, that comes out before free cash flow are those things you need to actually tool up the, the business to make the stuff. Have I got that roughly right in terms of the way you want to express it? That's absolutely correct, right? And, right. and, and then what when I'm you say saying- one follows the other, you're saying once you see revenue generation, then you expect to see that at some trailing, maybe 12, 18 months, eventually turns into free cash flow because growing revenue over time gives you enough scale to keep your costs down, keep your revenues up. That gives you operating cash flow. And once there's enough of that, and that continues to grow, you start to dwarf your investments in plant machinery, and that gives you free cash flow. I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't mean to dumb it down too much, but I just want to be really clear for our listeners who aren't maybe accounting geeks like us. Um, just is, is that a reasonable summary of the of what uh, you're saying? Absolutely right. And and, and the, the point I was trying to also make is a company that's spending for growth, like you know, it's going to spend the cash for you know new factory, new plants, new battery lines before actually revenue comes. You know, revenue comes out, and before actually free cash flow comes out of it. So there's like a trailing lag that you're going to see. Uh, you're going to make the investments upfront. But what is the, the beauty is that once you hit sort of the tipping point, 
then you start generating this sort of cash, right? Which is like th this, you know, trailing 12 months, you generate $3 billion of free cash flow or about $6 billion of operating cash flow. Nice. Compare that to a year ago where operating yeah. cash flow was about $2.4, $2.5 billion and free cash flow was just a billion. So you basically have tripled your free cash flow in the span of one year, right? While you're building factories on two different continents and expanding a factory in a, you know, a third mm. continent, right? Mm. So that is, is massive, I think. And uh, yeah, so that was, I think, the main highlight for me. I think that, again, the company's growing. The other highlight for me is that I think they changed how they wanted to guide. Uh, I think this is, this is good. And I actually also noticed that Apple mm. has not provided guidance. I think this is good. Instead of telling analysts exactly what they should be putting into their <laughs> model, it's much better to say, well, you know, we think this is what we think we're going to do over the next totally. five to 10 years. Um, you know, Apple has taken, I think, the advantage of the pandemic and basically said, ah, no guidance. Um, and Microsoft basically said, I'm going to put guidance in the call, which allows you to be, <laughs> to be uh, you know, uh, non-specific, I guess, and Apple base uh, and Tesla basically has said, well, we expect, you know, deliveries to grow 50% over the long term, some years more, some years less, and that's that. Yeah, but exactly. I, I think it's really smart uh, to sort of, you know, tell the look, we're managing business for the long term, right? The other thing to note, uh, Tesla finished with about nearly $19.5 billion of cash. Uh, they've been very smart to use their high cash share price to raise cash. And of course, they're generating free cash flows. That's adding to their mm -hmm. cash pile. Um, so, uh, you know, mm. I think it's a net cash position now of over $12 billion, I think, which is really, really strong and yeah, and, and exciting developments. And the other thing I think it's just probably going under the radar is the energy side, energy mm. um, out de energy deployments grew about 100%. Tell me there was a Powerwall 3 announcement, Doc. That's all I want to hear. Tell me they finally... Well, it's, it's, it's you know, Powerwall 3 probably is not as important as Megapack. Oh, Megapack has been on. driving like crazy. I want from a wall, mate. I've got a Powerwall 1. It wasn't particularly economic. I did it for the environmental benefit. But Powerwall 3, I reckon, is going to start to actually break even. I'd, I'd buy that tomorrow if they bloody released it. But Elon seems busy doing other... Apparently, he's got some cars and Megapacks to build. I don't, I don't know why he's not listening to me and building what I want. But apparently, well, he's got different you know, priorities, mate. Well, maybe that will change because you know the the, the, the new uh, the new factories are going to have their own battery lines. Oh, so maybe they'll make they'll have enough batteries now. I mean, right. here's the thing: I think for electric vehicles, <laughs> the bottleneck right now is battery supply. There's right. just not enough battery of high quality that can be turned into packs. Um, well, I guess once they solve the problem, uh, you'd probably get. You know, the, the, I think mega packs are just more profitable than you know, and then it can make ancillary revenue from software generation. You know, ancillary software-driven revenue on that side. Anyways, the other thing I wanted to point out. This is again, I've been banging on this, and I think this is least understood um, and the least appreciated aspect of Tesla's story. Uh, and I hate using the word story. Is uh, <laughs> the so one of the things Tesla is doing, which is very contrary to what Apple is doing, is that Tesla is cutting prices as it is delivering more vehicles. That's cool. And Tesla has a deferred revenue base now of a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd say that Tesla software and, you know, let's call whatever free, you know, full self-driving suite you want to call it. It's not full self-driving, but it's, let's call it driver assist. Yeah. Right now, let's say that the uptake of that is about 15 to 20% or 20% or 25%, whatever that number is. Again, I don't know what the recent numbers are. But as that software becomes better, not only do you recognize more revenue, 
you actually increase the take of that software. That's 100% gross margin as you increase the take rate for that software. If your deployed base of vehicles is large, let's say you have like, you know, uh, if you're delivering Mm -hmm. 1 million vehicles next year or the year after, you you typically you give the flick of a switch send this software now this could be recurring revenue if you make this a monthly subscription this could be one of payments if you made it a one of software as it is right now um, this is basically just 100 percent cross margin stuff that is just not <laughs> understood free money <laughs> uh, this is free money yeah. and if, if i was if i was running tesla i'd do exactly that right now i would try to get market share as much as i can totally. because I, I you know there's a gravy train on the other side that i can actually run. Oh, of course there's there's some assumptions built into it but you know, as a personal belief it doesn't even have to be full self driving like a robo taxi it just needs to be good enough that people actually pay for it right <laughs> exactly. which is um, which I think is completely feasible. Like we pay for software that doesn't really work all the time, all the time, right? <laughs> so there's a, so um, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and people are used to that sort of thing. So again, I think that that is uh, that's another thing. And the final thing I'll point out is uh, the operating margin this quarter was uh, about six percent or something like that. And Tesla called out and said, "Well, this is the best operating margin in the auto or uh, auto world." Um, you know, across all the companies that exist. And, you know, again, this is a company that's scaling up, so margin should really technically only go up. So anyways, I was very happy with actually all three results. I can't really, if I had to pick, like, you know, I think if I had to pick, I'm not being biased, I'd pick- uh, It's not gonna be Microsoft, is it? Let's be honest. <laughs> well, but I think the best result was, in my opinion, like, I mean, it is really difficult to deliver the type of results that Apple is delivering at that scale. Right. Yeah, yeah, like as, as you, that's exactly what you said, right? I mean, basically, how do you deliver? Like, how do you add on fifteen, twenty billion dollars in incremental sales at that scale, yeah. and you know, and and still keep growing and keep growing? That that is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Again, well, Tim Cook, I think, is an underrated CEO, as I've said, but he has grown. The, he has the number first quarter revenue from twenty eleven when he took over as CEO is twenty six billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, first quarter revenue this year. Uh, 2021, so now he's been CEO for 10 years, it's about 111 billion. So he's, he's, he's managed four to take the Four fold increase, not bad, is it? Yeah, it's not bad. So, I mean, he's done a phenomenal job while ensuring that Apple's heart and soul stays the same. I think that deserves a lot of credit. Um, you know, again, it's, it's a no mean feat to do it. If as, especially off coming off from somebody like that, that speaks to Steve, Steve Jobs you know, ability to create a bench strength. You know, he left the company with a bench strength of astoundingly strong leaders who could all actually individually go on to be CEOs of other companies. Again, that, that's, again, those are rare traits and, and I really appreciate those traits. It's a hell of a thing, mate. Yeah, even 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 if a CEO leaves and the company doesn't do terribly, that's often a, a good result. When you're someone particularly with the the, the 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 famed reality distortion field of Steve Jobs, when you can when you can run a business so successfully and then step off the stage, uh, unfortunately in, in in his case, in our case, uh, the mortal coil as well. Um, but but you know when he can leave a business behind that continues to grow at those sort of rates. Um, that that's it's not unheard of, of course, but that's really 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 unusual because so much of of great entrepreneurship is is bundled up in the person. Very hard to to turn that into something that's a company strength. And certainly, as you say, Apple's been able to do that in the person of, of, of Tim Cook, uh, but also in, in a broader sense as well. Just organisationally, um, that that is a remarkable legacy of Jobs. That I don't. I'm trying to think of someone who's kind of done something. I mean, you think about it, and really bad, bad example and bad comparison for for 
very good reasons, by the way. But um, you know, a GE, for example, and a Jack Welch. Jack was considered the the best CEO ever. GE was the the shining star of U.S. capitalism for a long time, uh, and it is a, a shadow of its former self. It's now longer ago than Steve Jobs departed, but you know that was a that was one way traffic. Um, maybe Disney is as close as it gets to businesses that kind of have been able to. I mean, that case probably even recover it, but I can't think of I can't think of a big, large scale business that's done as well post its founder as Apple has. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think Disney is probably a good example of where you know there's something about Disney that is uh, only present. You know, I think that transcends time, uh, and has allowed that business to keep transforming. Right? I mean, uh, nice. I think that's phenomenal. Nice. Mate, um, I, w- I want to holler. Only one thing, we've gone way over time, but um, useful and hopefully interesting for our listeners who are, who are getting insight into, into large cap tech. Um, I, you know, the, the lack of guidance, I'm, I'm a big fan of companies not giving guidance. I think it's horrible. It, it creates the most bizarre, perverse incentives. Um, I think what Apple and Tesla are doing in, in not giving guidance, it's, no, it's nowhere near the best part of their announcements, but I will say from a behavioral perspective, frankly, if I was a long-term shareholder, um, that'd be one of the one of the highlights of, of this of these announcements is a business that isn't going to make itself um, you know <laughs> hostage to its own you know short term guidance that it feels like it needs to provide Wall Street the ability as you say to escape from under that yoke uh, and run your own race in, in a more full way not that either of those two businesses have ever been considered to be <laughs> to be hostage to Wall Street but um, just simply walking away from that I think is a spectacularly great idea I think more companies should do it if no one gave guidance I would I'd be the happiest man in the world um, if you. I've been, worked in businesses where, you know, a quarterly yearly number uh, has created all sorts of perverse behaviours and stuff. And I think businesses are only stronger for not giving those sort of numbers away. So big, big rep from me for both those businesses for doing that as well. Now we're, we're over time. I'm going to throw one question because we always finish with a mailbag. So I will make it very quick and then we'll, then we'll finish up because we've got another podcast to record for, uh, guess what? Yep, for Sunday. That's special a question from Tim. Here we go. Good morning, A-Team, he says. We're the A-Team, mate. We must be soldiers of fortune. I love that. That's a, whole, that's a whole different thing. He says, I've got an easy question for you, and that's why I thought I'd do it. What is the difference between an off-market buyback and, I'm guessing, an on-market buyback? And does it really matter for us investors? Cheers, Tim. And if you're with one of your favorite hashtags, Doc, well, will be a new favorite hashtag, hashtag kick Google out. And a wink. So there you go. <laughs> um, I will. Uh, I will. I will take exception with that, Tim. But I will still let you ask your question because you called us the A team. I've always been a little bit of a, a fan of Hannibal Smith and uh, B. A. Baracus and Face Man and Murdoch. Anyway, that's way back into my childhood. Mate, uh, difference between off market and on market buyback. Can you help Tim out? Well, like I mean, on market basically is that you know the company basically decides, um, you know, basically appoints uh, brokers who buy the stock on market. Off market basically is like, you know, they send out a letter saying, well, you know, we're going to buy your stock at a predetermined price. You want to give it to us or not? Um, off market is, um, you know, is generally not very useful unless there's something else that's involved. Like, you know, it has been done, for example, for things like uh, Telstra, where uh, they've had, you know, franking credits and things like that, that, you know, are more useful for some people than versus others. And therefore, they can use the franking credits. Um, so I think that's ballpark. Um, my understanding. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right, mate. Um, th- there is no particular difference in the structure necessarily, Tim, although different structures allow companies to do different things with different things as doctors like Frank and Gareth and other things. So um, it's horses for courses. There's no there's no, there's no, no universal good or bad in either of them, I guess. Um, there might be a slight difference in costs, for example. And with an on-market, you don't know what price you're going to get. Um, so you've either got to wait for the shares to come to you or pay the market price off-market. You can you know the price, but you don't necessarily know how many people will take it up and you can't control how many people sell your shares um, because you've got to make an attractive offer enough. So there are pros and cons for both. And as Docs said, the Frank and Gareth are a massive swing factor. Mate, 
what company is it? There's a company at the moment. I think it, was, is it, is it might be Ampolio Caltex. Um, I think it bought it, it bought shares back off market and something like 80, 90% of the, the price was actually considered to be a dividend for the purpose of tax. And so it was an enormous franken credit that came with it. Um, they actually bought back the shares at a 14% discount to the market price because those franken credits were so valuable. People were happy to accept less per share uh, to get their hands on those franken credits. So that, that's areas where you couldn't simply offer that in the same way on market. So uh, different different ways of, of doing it, different benefits. But Tim, no, no, no key... Uh, universal good or bad as a result any more on that doc i have nothing to add i'm going to finish with a very simple one this week mate we've got way over time so full on full on the motley fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned general advice only please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m the motley fool operates under financial services license 400691